Today's reading is from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of God came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Morning, everybody. How about I pray before we uh, take a closer look at this passage in the Bible? Almighty God, thank you for this story of Jonah. Thank you that it's inspired by your spirit. It's your word and your word to us. And ask that you would open our hearts and our minds that we might hear you speaking to us through it. Help us to think on what you were saying, not to be distracted by what's happened this morning, what's going to happen later today, but uh, to focus and to let your word speak to our hearts and move us and change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On uh, July the uh, 8th of 1741, uh, in Einfeld, uh, Connecticut in America, a famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, some of you may know him, not personally I hope, because uh, that would be impressive, uh, he preached a, a uh, well, an infamous sermon perhaps in some, to some people, titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now at this time it was just the done thing to go to church, uh, many went along just to do their religious duty uh, and Jonathan uh, is particularly addressing them when he says things like this. This is what he, uh, part of his sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. And it's pretty much like that the whole way through. Uh, heavy on judgment. Uh, and on the horrendous nature of that judgment in hell, of God's fierce anger, uh, of eternal fire and brimstone and torment. But you don't hear that kind of preaching much anymore, do you? Because it just seems to be, I don't know about you, but excessive, 
uh, a bit backward, maybe even a little bit on the nose. Why on earth would you terrify people this way? Particularly children, with the idea of hell. Uh, is it just to scare people into joining our tribe, the Jesus tribe? Is that it? Uh, but uh, psychological scars along the way, a price worth paying for that? Is this kind of message ever warranted? Because it seems to be the message the prophet Jonah preached, and he got the best response you could ever get from it. So what are we to do with that? Is this the kind of message God wants people to hear? Well, to get to that, we need to get our heads back into this uh, intriguing ancient story of Jonah. Remember, it's a story that's been deliberately written as satire. It means that means it's to it's meant to intrigue us, uh, it, it maybe even make us laugh a little, smirk, particularly at Jonah. Uh, make us smirk at Jonah. We all need a good smirk, don't we? There's not enough smirking in the world. Let's smirk. And so, in chapter one, we see God tell Jonah, the prophet, to go to Nineveh, the great city of Assyria. At, at the time, which just happened to be the greatest empire on earth at the time, an empire known for its brutality and its brilliance. Here's a picture they found in the ruins of Nineveh of uh, some of the things the Assyrians did to the Israelite city, Lachish, in the 7th century BC. They, they would strip people naked and literally skewer them on a pole. Uh, that's what Assyria did to many smaller nations as they conquered them and assimilated them into the empire, their empire. This this is what Jonah, this is the Assyria that Jonah knew. This is what he knew of them. They're an enemy of his people, Israel. They're his enemy. They're a powerful and brutal enemy and he doesn't want anything to do with them. And so when God tells him to go and preach judgment on them, he runs away. As far as possible he runs away. He hops on a boat to Tarshish but God sends a storm. The sailors on that boat, they find out it's Jonah's fault. Uh, they throw him overboard. Uh, a big fish saves him from drowning and then spits him up on the shore back near Nineveh. Uh, it's a great little story. Here's a 30-second video of the story so far that I quite like. <laughs> Ah, I love the sound of that fish spinning, don't you? In Hebrew, the word for uh, vomited in uh, at the back end of chapter 2, uh, it's the word yaha. <coughs> yeah, meant to make you laugh, right? It sounds like vomit. Uh, sounds like a fish vomiting. It's meant to be a little bit funny. But that's what we're up to so far, uh, to the sound of fish vomit. As, as God goes on to tell Jonah to go to Nineveh like he should have the first time, uh, which brings us to our passage today. Uh, a passage with two points and, in keeping with the spitting sound, uh, accompanying sounds as well. So the, the first point is the message of judgment and burning. Is there a burning sound? No. Let's try it again. 
And then the second point, mercy, the message of mercy. Turn or burn. Yeah. Thanks, Carrie. I spent ages on that sound effect. So, first up, the message of judgment, burn. Uh, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Uh, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, in the Hebrew, Jonah's sermon uh, to Nineveh is five words. Essentially, you're going to burn. That's five words. You are going to burn. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a bold thing to say uh, to a long-time brilliant and brutal enemy. It might be that Jonah didn't care for his life. Uh, We've certainly seen that he preferred to die than do what he's currently doing now. He doesn't want to deliver God's message to the Ninevites. He doesn't think the Ninevites deserve it. At the time, uh, and time out in the fish doesn't seem to have changed his mind on this. I mean, last week we saw in the fish, he's, he's praying, he tells God, he says this, those who worship worthless idols, I'm sure he's got the Ninevites right forefront in mind, forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. That's what he's telling God in the fish. And so even though he's gone to Nineveh, it's not because he wants to, or because he thinks the idol-worshipping and brutal Ninevites deserve it, it's because God won't let him not go. (laughs) He can't even die his way out of it. And so he goes. But he only goes and gives the bare minimum. You are going to burn, he tells them. No mention of who the message is from, or why they're going to burn, let alone how they might avoid it, It's almost like Jonah is trying to sabotage the whole point that God's sending him to the Ninevites so that they might turn from their wicked ways. Jonah just wants to see them burn because he hates them. He thinks they've forfeited God's love, that all they deserve is destruction. He'd be more than happy to just let them go on their their merry wicked ways and fall headlong off the cliff that they're running towards and so he gives them the bare minimum. Five words of judgment. You are going to burn. Now, before we dismiss Jonah and his minimum, bare minimum, as nothing like us, it might be worth thinking about whether we give the bare minimum sometimes when it comes to seeing people hearing God's message. Now, we may give the bare minimum not because we hate people, but maybe because we don't even think about them, firstly, as hell-bound. Maybe we're more hung up on other things about them than the fact that they have their on their merry way to hell. The other week, I uh, listened to a very passionate guy at a church meeting. He was thoroughly reformed and orthodox in his theology, and he was having a go at how evangelical churches have lost their way. They've lost their way because they're weak on sin. Weak on calling out sexual sin, particularly for what it is. Weak on letting the whole LGBTQIA plus agenda soften our stance on sin. He said he'd have to leave a church that welcomed a gay couple into their midst. He said he couldn't stand to be in a church that was so accepting of such sin and sinners. I'm pretty sure he would have been very happy for 
such a hypothetical couple to hear a Jonah sermon. You are going to burn. What about us? Are we happy to say as little as possible? And in most cases, nothing about God's mercy in Jesus, but more than happy to attack those taking away our rights to free speech, our freedom of religion? Are we making it as easy as as possible for people to trust and listen to us as we speak to them about Jesus? I wonder if if we're prepared to be mistaken for siding with the sin to reach the sinner, to get along to a gay wedding so our gay friend might still listen to us when we talk to them about Jesus. To call someone their preferred pronoun because we want them to listen to us when we talk to them about Jesus. To vote for the voice because we see it as opening more opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with people. Now I'm not saying that we should or need to do these things as Christians. I'm just saying that perhaps the first, what first dictates our choices, our life choices and what we get passionate about should be a concern that people are going to hell. And that we'll, be, we'll want to be working as hard as possible so that they might be able to hear us when we talk about Jesus to them. Wouldn't it be a shame if people couldn't hear the saving message of Jesus from us because we were more concerned to protect our own, fight for our rights and deride the inconsistencies of our opponents than trying our hardest to love them than doing more than just the bare minimum so that they might trust us and listen to us when we talk about Jesus. That they might come to see their need for him. Precisely because of the coming judgment. Which brings us to our second point. God's merciful (coughs) message. Turn or burn. As we see that although all Jonah says is burn... Amazingly, the Ninevites, they don't just hear burn, they hear turn or burn. And they turn. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Yeah, amazingly, despite Jonah seeming, uh, seeming to sabotage the message with as few words as possible, God's word nonetheless gets through. It's like grass on, under concrete. Yeah. Uh, or water under, around a wetsuit. Some of it will always get through. That's the nature of God's word, even and especially his word of judgment. And while we wouldn't say that the Ninevites turned entirely from their sins, I mean, they don't end up joining the, the covenant community of God's people uh, with the Israelites, nonetheless, they hear God through Jonah. And what they hear, they agree is good. It's confronting, but... They agree with it. Now, this may have been helped by a bunch of things. Life could have been really hard for the Ninevites at the time. Maybe there were natural disasters, famines, earthquakes, diseases. Uh, Maybe there was a breakdown of the city into factions and there was excessive violence as a result, like gangs all around the place that was just making life miserable. Maybe it was a combination of all these things. Life was just really tough, and as religious people, the Ninevites may have interpreted all these hardships as their gods being angry at them, and so they were just ripe for some itinerant prophet to come along and push their troubled consciences into action. Because to the man, they believed God's warning. 
and they turn from their evil and violent ways. They believe and turn so that they might not burn. They here turn or burn, they take the burn seriously and they turn. And it's not an insignificant turn. They want to make sure God sees their turning, that they're really sorry. Verse 6, we read, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took up his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, he sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. From the greatest of them to the least... They want God to know for sure that they're sorry. That even their animals are sorry, all dressed in sackcloth. I'm I'm sure they're very sorry. Uh, But they wanted to make sure that God knew they were sorry, hoping against hope that the goodness of God's judgment might be matched by the goodness of his mercy. Verse 9, it's interesting. Who knows? This is the king's thinking. And... Presumably he's representing all his people. Who knows God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now why would they even think that that's a possibility? That God might relent and be compassionate. Was it because they came to accept there's something wrong with their self, with themselves? Something broken and bad? And when they hear God's judgment, they see that it's true. Yes, we are. We're broken and bad. They know they deserve the destruction they're heading towards, that they need something, someone outside of themselves and their own resources to save them. And so they turn to the one whose judgments are right and good. The one who doesn't lie to them, who tells them the truth, no matter how hard it might be to hear. They accept his judgment on their wickedness and turn from it and then turn to him in hope that he might save them as only he can. And clearly their hope's not misplaced. What happens? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he didn't bring on them the destruction he threatened. All along, God's threat of judgment was the blessed truth that he wanted the Ninevites to embrace. And in their desperation, embracing that truth about themselves and their destination that they would turn to him for mercy which he is more than willing to give in this then his threat of judgment wasn't only the the truth but it was loving as a warning it was loving for to warn someone of inevitable disaster it's to love them right to not warn them that's not loving Jonah didn't want it heard as a warning. He just wanted it as judgment. Full stop. Suck eggs, Ninevites, you're going down. But as God's word, his word of judgment, as a warning, it's a word of truth and love because because it's always an opportunity for people to reckon with their brokenness and look to him for mercy. The Ninevites, they seem to have intuitively known this. Uh, They all knew they were in the wrong, that their condemnation was deserved, but still sought to turn their weakness around in the hope that God would turn around from destroying them. And all people should know this is true too. 
The Bible is clear that God's judgment on human wickedness and violence is universal. It's not one rule for the powerful and clever who can worm their way out of being held to account for the dodgy things they've said, done and thought, and another rule for the weak and stupid who have no hope of escaping the consequences of their bad attitudes and behaviour. In God's economy, all are in the wrong. And so his judgment falls on the greatest to the least, like it did in Nineveh. As we read elsewhere in the Bible, there is no one who does good, not even one. Everybody has been wicked and violent, if not in what they say and do, certainly in their hearts. I mean, whoever we are, a murderer or a hater, and who hasn't hated in their hearts? Whoever we are, a murderer or a hater, in God's eyes we're all of the same kind, all cut from the same cloth. We're no different in kind, just degrees. We're all on the same violent trajectory. Just some of us are closer to actually making someone dead as opposed to wishing they were dead. As such, God's judgment that we're all guilty of wickedness and violence, it's actually quite democratic. It's a great leveller. To God, we're all equally guilty and deserving of his punishment and as such, we're all, all of us, all equally in need of his mercy which he's more than eager to give. More. More than eager to give. More to give that, his mercy, than his judgment. If we ask for it. It's helpful to keep this in mind, I reckon, as we talk of Jesus and God's judgment to people, as we think about it, that there's no us and them, the good people like us, and the bad people, you know, those who hate us and don't like what we like, there's just bad people. Bad people who need God's mercy, a mercy that he's more than willing to give us in Jesus. People need to hear that. Hear this from us who've turned to Jesus for mercy. Hear this from us and see this from us as we own our own badness while we tell of God's mercy to us in Jesus that his judgment of our badness is loving because it leads us to call on his mercy. People need to see that God's judgment is good, not just because it's a loving warning, but because it's true. And we all are sick with the knack of suppressing the truth. As the Bible says elsewhere, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The Bible says people reject God, not because there's no good reason to believe in him, but because they don't want to believe in him. They suppress the the truth to do what they want to do and avoid doing what they don't want to do. That's what the Bible calls wickedness. But interesting... Interestingly, this idea of suppressing the truth, it's probably something that most people, if not all, can accept that we all do. You know, in popular psychology, there's this idea that we often keep the truth out of our conscious minds, even though this truth explains us better than the truth we're prepared to acknowledge. That if only we faced up to the truth of who we are on the inside, then we'd be free. But in fear and shame, what do we do? We suppress it. 
we suppress the truth. And we know this to be true not just on the counsellor's couch, but we know it in the world around us as we're all happily slaves to consumerism, each and every one of us. Who hasn't gone shopping to feel less bored and more blessed? All the while suppressing the truth that we all know to be true, that we're more than we own, and that we can't take one bit of it with us once we're dead, but we suppress this truth anyway, and we do retail shopping. In our retail therapy, we suppress that truth. We look for health and healing, for therapy, by buying stuff. But it's like a band-aid on a bullet wound. Such therapy only covers it up to let it fester. But we all do it. We're all slaves to the next purchase. We're all masters of suppressing the truth. And so it's not unreasonable to think any guilt before God that we suppress, any sense of coming up short of God's standards that we laugh off, maybe as an outdated joke or doesn't apply to us, that that might just be the truth too. That maybe we can't trust our own judgments since we're just wired to suppress the truth. That's just what we do. And so perhaps God's judgment, although uncomfortable, it's actually a truth that's worth our time worrying about. Particularly if the God who judges us tells us not so that we burn, but so that we turn. Turn from thinking we're okay, they're okay, we're all okay, actually to face the reality that we're all masters of suppressing the truth. And the truth is we've all treated God appallingly and deserve nothing from him except to be thrown in hell. But no matter how bad we've been, how bad we are, Nineveh level of bad, God doesn't want us to burn, amazingly. He wants us to turn, to turn from treating him like he's not God, like he's not even there, to turn from that to Jesus, to accept that Jesus got burned in our place on that cross so that God might turn his judgment away from us and save us from hell into eternal life. As such, God's word of judgment, although confronting in its truth, it's actually a relief. It's loving. And it's his mercy. It's something we can frame up, as we talk of it, as truly democratic and as a profound relief. Because God's judgment levels the human race It makes us all, great and small, equally in need of God's mercy. And because God's judgment, although confronting, it's the truth that we all know we're more than likely suppressing. It's a profound relief to accept that, to know that and accept it, because living a life suppressing the truth in our own waywardness, that's exhausting. As a loving warning then, God's word of judgment is what we all need to hear and what we need to share with each other. Hell may be hard to hear, but it is true and we all deserve to burn in it. But God doesn't tell us to psychologically scar us. He tells us so that we might not burn, but instead turn, turn to Jesus. He tells us so that we might care that others turn to Jesus too. The entertainer and avowed atheist, uh, Penn Gillette, tells of a guy who came to him after one of his shows, he's a magician, 
uh, after one of his shows, a, a guy came up to him with a Bible and he was respectful and honest and sane and sincere and Penn was actually struck by how good this guy was, uh, how he actually respected him for trying to talk to him about Jesus, for proselytising him. He said this, reflecting on this uh, incident. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell and you think it's not really worth telling them this, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytise? Now, does that mean every conversation we have to have with people is about hell? Well, of course not. In some cases, it's the long game and God calls us to be uh, gentle and kind and sensitive. But if hell doesn't at least move us to pray more for those around us, that they would turn to Jesus. And if God's judgment fails to feature in any of our conversation with people, it might be worth asking ourselves whether or not we're on the same page as God and his ways in this world. Whether we truly love people as he does. Enough to warn them of hell. Now, while I wouldn't go with Jonathan Edwards, uh, how, with everything that Jonathan Edwards puts in his uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon, there's no doubting, at the time, his love for his listeners. As he finishes off his sermon, he says this, Let everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women, or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word. Awake and fly from the wrath to come. I'm going to pray. Almighty God, the message of your judgment is heavy. And confronting. Hell is not something that is pleasant. But it is true. And it's not your desire that any should perish and be cast into hell. Please help us to reckon with your message of judgment for what it is a loving true warning something that people need to hear to relieve them of living an exhausting life of suppressing the truth something that people need to hear so that they might turn to you and seek your mercy and find that you are more than willing to give it in Jesus. Please, may your message of judgment move us to be more mindful of those around about us, that their main need, their first need, is your mercy and to be praying for them and courageously and sensitively speaking to them 
about Jesus and how he is their escape, uh, their only escape, their merciful, your merciful escape from the coming wrath. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.